This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. <laughs> Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hey everybody, this is Razib here. Uh, I am here today with a, uh, I think, a, uh, are you a, is this a first time author, Patrick? First time author, yeah. First, all right, so I'm here with a first time author, uh, Dr. Patrick Wyman, who is probably well known to you from the Tides of History podcast, but um, he has a book out uh, called The Verge. So Patrick, could you introduce yourself and then we're going to get into the book, some nitty gritty. Yeah. So I'm Patrick Wyman. Um, I am the host of the Tides of History podcast right now. Uh, I'm doing episodes on prehistory at the moment, but before this, I did episodes on the early modern period and the late middle ages, um, which is more or less what The Verge is about. Um, I did my doctorate in history at USC and I did that on the end of the Roman empire and the end of the Roman world. That's what my first podcast, The Fall of Rome was about. Um, um, I've also worked as a sports journalist. Uh, I've done lots and lots and lots of different things over the years. And now apparently I'm writing books. That's uh, that's what they tell me, at least. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the full title is The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance and 40 Years That Shook the World. So, um, you know, you're, you, you've done a lot of different things. And I think it kind of shows in this book, uh, just for the listener, uh, you know, obviously get the book, read the book. I will tell you, this is not a standard academic book, um, but I also don't think it's a standard. Um, I don't know. It's not like a standard airport history book. Uh, I felt like, uh, you know, it was pretty diverse in its orientations and, and its methodologies. You kind of threw the kitchen sink at it, but um, it's written in a very... Uh, I don't know, just a very breezy uh, conversational style as well. And, you know, those of you who listen to the podcast, I think there's going to be some similarities you notice in terms of the way that uh, uh, Patrick kind of like illustrates historical processes. Um, you know, before like I kind of get into it, Patrick, why don't you talk about the book, your general philosophy, your general aim with it and like how you went about it and like what you want to get to the reader? Well, so to, to start with, I want to address the, the, the kind of genre aspect that you just mentioned there, because I wanted to write something that was as close to a seamless melding of academic history and popular history as I could. So I didn't want to lose the methodologically rigorous, deeply researched pieces of doing history, but I wanted it to be readable, understandable, and enjoyable at the same time. So I wanted to be sure that even as I was trying to get at what I hope are some fairly large-scale, meaningful historical processes that are approached in ways that, again, hopefully have some methodological sophistication to them. At the same time, it was still going. there were still going to be stories nestled within the book that could engage the reader and help humanize what I, again, what I think are fairly large-scale, fairly, large fairly important processes. I didn't want to write something dry. I didn't want it to be abstract. But at the same time, I didn't want to fall into the trap of just like writing great man history because it's narratively pleasing and easy. So the what I decided to focus on here was the first four decades of the 15 of the 16th century basically the last decade of the 15th century first first few decades of the of the 16th because i think a lot of stuff happened 
And whenever a lot of stuff happens, to put it in totally technical terms, you've got to try to find some sort of causal explanation for that. Like, why is it at this particular time in this particular set of places, all of this stuff happens? Um, and so the mechanism that it seemed to me was the was the most convincing for explaining this was finance, finance and credit, that you have voyages of exploration, you have state building processes, you have a, a dra dramatic expansion of banking, uh, you have uh, you have the expansion of the printing press, gunpowder warfare, reformation being kind of downstream of some of these things. A lot of stuff happens very quickly and what unites them all is is capital and finance. The fact that you that these were all scalable processes that you could direct funding into on on ever increasing scales. Um, and so that's why it seems to me that a lot of stuff happens so quickly is because you have these small scale things at the beginning. And then as soon as people saw that there was the potential to make a lot of money off of them, as soon as people saw that you could make enormous returns on your investment from voyages to India, um, that printing presses were in fact a profitable new technology, that gunpowder warfare was a thing that if you were the, if you were the right person making the right loan, then there was money to to be made off that there was money to be made making loans to monarchs like that all of these things very quickly had the potential to spiral um in terms of scale and also to spiral out of control so you have a combination of lots of stuff happening incredibly disruptive uh consequences of these things destructive consequences in a lot of cases um while at the same time setting the tone for the next several centuries. I really think this is kind of a critical juncture where uh, institutional foundations get laid down that remain in place for a very long time. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you, you cover a 40-year period. So, you know, by analogy, uh, if you had covered, say, 1590 to 1630, that would have been interesting. But, um, you know, you hit the Reformation or you hit the, you know, Martin Luther's 95 theses, um, kind of the cresting of the uh, printing press in terms of becoming a widespread technology and 1492. So, you know, I mean, like you're, you're bracketing in this zone, like a lot of big hits uh, that people would know about. And so um, I think that that was great. Um, one thing that I noticed, uh, you know, your chapters are based around uh, or they're titled with people. Uh, so, you know, there's a narrative aspect, uh, but uh, there's differences. Um, Christopher Columbus, everybody knows. Uh, Jacob Fugger, I know, but not everybody knows. And I did not know who Gotts von Berlich engine was. <laughs> Gertz von so Berlich engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like you start out with kind of like, okay, like famous people and then more obscure people. And then you kind of end it with famous people. Was that was that a it, was that a plan? Yeah, it was an intentional choice. So basically, I wanted to I wanted to wrap each of these major themes and processes ar around the life of a person to the extent that it was possible to do so. And from from my perspective, I really like to do sociological storytelling as opposed to kind of biographical storytelling. I really like to use the life of a person. Uh, as a typical illustration, as rather than them as an extraordinary kind of person, a person whose own agency is necessarily driving events forward. So I tried to choose even the famous people 
as representative of broader types, like types of guys that existed in the 15th and 16th century. So like Charles V, um, Holy Roman Emperor is the last chapter, but Charles V was very much a typical European noble of his day and age, not even a particularly intelligent or accomplished one. He just had access to much greater resources. And so what I was trying to do was find people that I thought could illustrate these things while being typical, while still having some stuff that made them stand out and be interesting. Like Gertz von Berlichingen is a one-armed German mercenary. He got his arm shot off by a cannonball who spent uh, most of his adult life as kind of a professional feuder for hire. Uh, and so he would go out and he would rob merchants and he would fight in these small scale wars. But what makes Goetz fascinating is he's a participant in the military revolution, all of the, uh, the kind of dramatic transformations of gunpowder warfare that are happening at this time. And he's acquainted with and friends with people who are kind of genuine characters in the grand scheme of European politics. Like he's a part of this world, even though he's kind of on the fringes of it. And so I was trying to find people who could, who could speak to those things, who could give a kind of a narrative coherence while at the same time serving to humanize and illustrate these, these much larger and, and potentially really abstract things that are going on. Like when you talk about state building, like what is state building? You know, like that's, mm -hmm. that seems like it's, uh, that can, that can very easily become a thing that slips beyond um, kind of uh, the, the, the human dimension. And I didn't want to lose that. I wanted to make sure that all of this was rooted as much as possible in the lives of actual people. So, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I want to, I want to talk about something in terms of like what kind of history this is, uh, what kind of history people read. Uh, so, you know, I'm not a historian. I read a lot of history books, but I'm not, but I, I've heard there's diplomatic history. Uh, there's social history. I, mean, I think social and cultural history are kind of the same. And then there's economic history. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this kind of wrapped it all together. Like, yeah, that well, that was my hope. I mean, I so I was trained as basically a political historian, but along the way, I fell in with a bunch of social and economic historians. Like my, like my one of my major advisors in grad school uh, was it was a, a feminist uh, historian of, of medieval England, but she all she worked with were like coroner's roles, legal records. So this very kind of like hardcore granular social and economic history. And so those were the methods that I picked up where the, where the object of concern as a historian should be kind of everyday people. Um, it should not necessarily be the great and the good. And that the model for understanding how history happens is one in which aggregates are more important than individual action. That this is, uh, so what I tried to do was apply that kind of basic method, which grows out of like social history and economic history in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's kind of an old school method nowadays. It's not really popular. It's not really in vogue. Um, I tried to marry that with narrative um, A narrative history being another thing that has kind of fallen out of fashion. Like professional historians are discouraged from writing stories. Um, there, the, there's a sense that that grows out of kind of like postmodern history in the 90s that like narrative is all fiction. And it's like, well, yeah, it's fiction, but it's useful. It's helpful. Mm -hmm. it's, it is like stories or how people engage with the world. You know, you like you've got to kind of meet your readers in the middle at some point. And yeah. so rather than rejecting narrative, it's like, let's understand the limitations of it, how we can use it and how we can combine it with these more methodologically sound things. So I'd say it's basically economic and social history, but it translates into these other things and it's got a very firmly material bent to it. Yeah. I'm so, you know, for, uh, for the listener, um, you know, to get a sense of the book, uh, it's very academic uh, in terms of like, you know, look, I mean, Patrick's a PhD historian, uh, you know, 
he's going to come at it from a certain viewpoint. But then there's the narrative aspect, which um, I think, I mean, I'm not, I don't usually read stuff like that very often. So I'm just like, whoa, what's going on with this guy? Uh, so the stuff about the knight, Gotts von Berlinging, um, I'm going to have to say that was probably the most vivid part of the book, even though he's the most obscure of the, I, I pro, well, I don't know about John Heritage. So I'm, I'm thinking of like, okay, whose names have I seen? I think I've seen Alva, Aldous before. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I, I've, yeah, I read about the Fuggers. I knew about that and all the other, you know, Luther, everyone knows Luther, Charles, the, everyone knows Charles the fifth, you know, but mm-hmm. this guy, I didn't know who this guy was. Uh, he's got some weird German name, but there's a lot of vivid stories in there. And so, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it was interesting to me because uh, it was like, you know, you, you have like this very academic bent and then all of a sudden um, this guy's beating the crap out of someone. <laughs> okay. yeah, which, which, which I feel like in some way is also an encapsulation of, of my life. I felt some kinship there with, with Gertz, but the, the Gertz part is like, it, it's a really interesting example of you can, you can only write histories based on the sources that you have available to you. The kinds of sources that you have are going to kind of dictate what you can do with them, the kinds of stories you can tell, the kinds of analysis that you can do. And with Goethe, what we have is his memoir. We have an autobiographical memoir that he wrote late in life. He was like 80 something years old. He was I'm presumably blind at this point, very fat, uh, kind of sitting uh, sitting at home in his castle with his with his grandson. And you can just imagine this like crotchety old bald dude covered in scars, like uh, just half drunk by by the middle of the day, like dictating his memoir to like, yes, OK, grandpa. OK, OK, yes. Then you then you killed the merchant. Then you beat up the Polish servant like that's that's great. So you get you can kind of hear this guy's worldview at first hand from him. You can you don't have to read between the lines like his assumptions about the way the world is supposed to work are right there. And so I tried to I tried to convey that as much as possible because a knight in the in the early 16th century is not what we think of as like a chivalric figure. You know, they're not out there like saving ladies. The the core of being a knight at this point in time is doing violence to people. That's what yeah. do it, that's what being a knight was supposed to be is you defend your social position through the application of violence. And that's just a constant thread in Gertz's memoir. And, you know, by that same token, you mentioned John Heritage. He's the subject of, of a slightly later chapter. He's an English wool merchant. Um, so yes, I wrote an entire chapter about a wool merchant. I hope it's fat. I hope it's more interesting than it sounds on the, on the, uh, on the surface of it. But like, you can write that history of John Heritage, this very, this kind of common figure. Like there were a lot of guys like him because we have his account book. And so we can see the transactions that he engaged in the kinds of constant cycles of owing people money and people owing him money and buying this much and selling this much at this time of the year, you can see his whole worldview encapsulated, but it's encapsulated in this, in an account book instead of a kind of a narrative memoir. So Mm -hmm. what I try, yeah, what I mean, so like what I tried to do for those chapters was just find interesting sources and build the life of the person outward from there, as opposed to necessarily going with somebody who is more famous to illustrate it. Well, so, you know, um, you know, you have a very clear and uh, distinct topic in this book uh, that was obvious. And I think unlike a more standard academic book, you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't spend like an incredible amount of time kind of framing the entire, like, you know, 
literature, the historiography and all that stuff. You know, so I, I'm going to like ask you before I want to get into the book, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your opinions on this. I mean, I think I kind of know, but I'm not totally sure uh, because I think it was like, relatively quick in this book. So this book is to some extent implicitly it's about the rise of Europe. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It's about like, OK, like what made Europe different? This is the liftoff period or maybe not the liftoff period, but it's it's a hinge. It's a the verge. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there is an idea that, you know, um, so, for example, I think like John Darwin, uh, someone like him uh, accepts the idea that Europe's great divergence and its rise is relatively late. And there's other people that believe in this long fuse where it goes back to the high medieval period and so reading your work i get a sense like okay medieval europe is kind of poor and out of the way um there are other people that argue actually it was kind of wealthy uh, on a per unit basis and so i mean what do you think about these sorts of debates like do you come down on i mean i i get the sense that you know in this book you're kind of depicting it as kind of poor so i mean you, do you align with those scholars yeah so first of all i i think that I, so yeah, what we're talking about basically is the Great Divergence, and at what point does Europe become something um, that's that's orders of magnitude different from the rest of the world? I definitely don't think that happens for good in this period. I think the outlines of the future the, in which that becomes a thing are more visible in 1530 than they were in 1490. So it's not necessarily that I think that Europe was poor. I do think it was a backwater, in the sense that. That was it was the end point of trade routes rather than the point from rather than uh, rather than a middleman, rather than someplace. People were not going to Europe to get things that they wanted. Europe's only real major export was cloth in terms of its internal development. There there were particular areas that were as wealthy as anywhere in the world. But I but those were fairly restricted areas. I think that that tends to skew. Economic historians, um, when they look back and they want to and they want to argue about these things, the data that we have that's that's really granular that allows us to see, um, you know, per per capita productivity, uh, per capita wealth um, is really heavily skewed towards the wealthier areas of Europe. It's really heavily skewed towards the Low Countries and Northern Italy and urban and basically the highly urbanized. Um, sophisticated economically sophisticated parts of Europe. We're not getting a lot of data from like shepherds out on the Castilian Meseta. We're not getting a lot of we're not getting a lot of data from like villages of woodsmen in France. Like we're not getting that kind of data that would give us I, what I think is a much more representative picture of the the kinds of uh, peaks and valleys of the European economy in that period. So there's so it's a kind of a yes and a no thing. Like Europe's a backwater in the sense that it's it doesn't have trade goods that other people want. It's not a backwater in that it's not poor exactly. And in terms of commercial and in terms of commercial institutions, technologies, ways of doing business, it's actually exceptionally sophisticated. So you have these kinds of competing ways of understanding and looking at the the European economy at this time. It's like there it's highly regionally integrated which is un which is pretty unusual in the global scheme of things. Um, it is quite technically sophisticated. There are lots there's lots of movement of money from place to place. Um, there are lots of different currencies which require a lot of different ways of thinking about money. It's fully monetized like that's so it's sophisticated in these senses, but there's not that much coin moving around. So the, the theoretical wealth of Europe is much higher than its actual wealth in terms of the amount of gold and silver that are sitting around that are that are fungible and available for use. And it doesn't have trade goods that other parts of the world are really all that stoked to get. That's why it's 
that's what makes it to my mind a backwater it's also what makes mm-hmm. it interesting is you have this kind of uh this kind of the, the the flip sides of the coin where commercial sophistication lots of stuff happening economically in europe but without the raw materials that we would think make up um wealth yeah this is you make an interesting point because i i'm thinking here of like some of the stuff i've read about um the mccartney delegation to you know, uh, Manchu Ming, Qing China in the late 18th century, they had those exact same problems. Mm-hmm. It's like the problems you're talking about, where uh, Europeans just didn't have things that the Chinese wanted, and so this is a consistent problem. And so they got it through specie, you know, through silver and gold, and um, it's just really interesting to me because I don't know. We think we do. I mean, to be frank, like I mean, a lot of stuff is going on in Europe. You have all the science, you have all this stuff going on, and yet they still don't have anything to export until relatively late. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, before we get into your book, I mean, is that just a just like a weird structural issue here, where it's like this advanced part of the world that still doesn't export things for a long time that other people want? Yeah, I mean, so. It's really fascinating, and I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure I have a great answer because Europe is tied into the world system. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's not like it's totally cut off. It just happens to be at the fringes of it. So I think part of it is geographic position because it's not like you know when you look at Central Asia in the in the 14th or the 15th century that they are producing a lot of things that that are you know really desired by the rest of the world, but they're middlemen. Right. So there's yeah. there's tremendous amounts of money to be made in 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 servicing the massive trans-Eurasian trade at that point in time. Europeans don't have that benefit. They've got to go outward, which creates sets of incentives and ways of thinking about and doing business that come in handy later on. Um, in terms of why no exports? Yeah, I mean, it's just like the there's not a lot of sources of precious metal in Europe. The ones that are available uh, tend to run dry fairly quickly. Uh, the When we get into the later 15th century, new technologies uh, and capital investment make sources of, make sources of silver um, like in, in Tyrol much more available and viable. But still, there's a, there's a shortage of coin. Um, there's no precious gems. There's no spices. Europeans are great at making cloth, but cloth is really hard to export because it's so bulky. It's a big, heavy trade good, and you've got to be dealing in enormous quantities to make it worthwhile. Combine that with the fact that it's woolen cloth, and you know, if you're trying to sell to the Muslim world, there's not an enormous market for really heavy, high-quality woolen cloth in, in warmer climates, and you're kind of stuck. So that's why Europe ends up running this massive negative trade balance with the rest of the world, because Europeans want luxuries from elsewhere. European elites want those luxuries, um, and they end up draining Europe of a bullion in order to pay for them. Yeah. um, So I'm going to get to the book, but one last thing I want to say for the geneticists listening, you know, reading this book and just like this conversation, um, you know, we're not talking about hard sweeps on single genes here. This is complex trade evolution. (laughs) So, so it's like, you know, there's some history books that have like one single idea, you know, um, I don't know. There's some people that claim, oh, well, Europe's advantage over China was the phonetic script, something like that. This is not what this is not what The Verge is about. The Verge is about a lot of different things coming together and, you know, just kind of happen. Maybe it's happenstance. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe it was inevitable. But it's a lot of different things. And so, um, you know, I want to make that clear as we're going into the book. I do have to say, listening to your podcast, I didn't get a sense you were a big fan of Christopher Columbus. Uh, <laughs> but uh, reading the chapter, he's actually a lot more accomplished than I had realized. Because you know, I I grew up in an area with a lot of Italian Americans, so Columbus Day was actually a big area, a uh, big big day when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really, 
I didn't know what a cosmopolitan man about the world. I mean, I think I knew intellectually on some level, but your first chapter like brought to life this kind of um I don't know if he had Asperger's or what was <laughs> the guy. Okay, I'm not going to use the word. I mean, but he does not seem like a very um you wouldn't want to hang out with him, like just get him away from us. But on the other hand, uh he did go a I mean, it sounds like he was one of the most well-traveled people in the world at the time. He was definitely one of the better-traveled sailors in that set of people. So this is it's funny you, you, you mentioned Columbus, because I just finished writing an article entitled Columbus was a replacement-level historical figure. So the So basically, I don't think that any individual trait of Columbus's is particularly outstanding. It's not like any single individual voyage that he took was totally out of the ordinary prior to 1492, but he'd done a lot of them. He'd been he he had been all over the place. He had access to a lot of firsthand experience that gave that gave him something of an edge. He, he stood out at least a little bit in terms of that particular aspect of his, uh, of his experience. On the other hand, if you compare him to other European um, seamen of the time, he had a much worse um, theoretical understanding of geography. Uh, mm. He, uh, when you look at the marginal annotations in the books that he owned, it's clear that he didn't really understand what he was reading. Um, so he could read them, he would take notes, but he didn't really. He was not coming to like profound insights when he was reading mm -hmm. these texts, you know. So uh, there's he's. I don't think Columbus was a good guy by, by any stretch of the imagination. I wouldn't make him out to be a hero, but I also don't know that he's a villain. I think he's just kind of a guy and his flaws are very much the flaws of the broader um, community and subculture to which he belonged. That it's like Vasco da Gama was a true psychopath, you know, like that, like that was a bad guy. He like burned ships alive with burned ships with people on them. Um, like that was, that was part of what he did. You know, Amerigo Vespucci was a pimp. Uh, prior to prior to being an explorer and an even more enthusiastic slave trader than Columbus was. So a lot of this stuff is just baked into that worldview. And it's not um, one of the things I try to emphasize is that it's a very specific world that Columbus belongs to. So it's not so much Western Europe writ large. It's this community of Mediterranean and Atlantic sailors who are used to doing business in very specific ways with very specific kinds of incentive structures. So like there are a lot of these guys, but we're not necessarily talking about a reflection of the whole society at the time in the same way that like if you were to pluck out Silicon Valley venture capitalists as a class of people like there, that's a very specific group. Do they have some connection to their broader context? Absolutely. Are they are they tied into to broader currents in you know 21st century global and American society? Yes, absolutely. But they're a specific subculture, and the group that Columbus belonged to was likewise a specific subculture. And it just so happened that the norms and mores of that group are what gets transplanted and becomes kind of the root of this colonial project that leads to you know a lot of death and destruction. Yeah. Um... I have to say, if uh, yeah, your depiction of the Portuguese. Um, so uh, I think Roger Crowley has a book called Conquerors. Uh, um, what's up with them? Like, let me just ask, what's up with them being so unpleasant? Like, what's up with that? <laughs> like okay, so like they're kind of like a George R. R. Martin like level like villain. Like that's I don't know. Like that's yeah, yeah. If you're looking for villains, uh, the 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 early Portuguese expeditions are a good place to go. So I think part of it is the, the, the roots of Portuguese and, and, um, and 
first Castilian and then Spanish exploration and, and colonization are a little bit different. Um, in Portugal, it's much more rooted in the royal household. Um, and so the people that the king is tasking with these expeditions that he's sending out are nobles who have experience of crusading in North Africa. That like that's that's kind of their background. So when I'm talking about subcultures, that's that's part of the thing here is that they're it's the group from which you're drawing the the folks who are going directly to the Indian Ocean to try to trade, to fight Muslims, to raid, um, eventually to to engage in some pretty stunning imperial ambitions, considering the scale that they that they were operating on, are directly drawn from this background. They're they're knights. They have they've been they've been told stories around the fire for centuries about killing bad guys and killing infidels. They're used to doing maritime violence that they're knights. But in Portugal, what knights did a lot of the time was corsairing. They would go out on ships and they would as long as they could plausibly claim that this ship was bound for a Muslim port, they could just take it. So they're they're pirates. You know, um, they're they are engaged in high seas violence for profit. So you get this really neat melding in the Portuguese context, especially of religious violence with profit seeking motivations that transplants itself very easily. It finds really fertile soil in the Indian Ocean. And so that that I think is why they end, it ends up being such a kind of a, a shock is because it's not like you're drawing. I mean, and you've you, so you've read Albion Seed and it, the it, a book I know, a book you introduced yeah. to me many many years ago now that like when when you have a new movement of people to a place you're not drawing a representative sample of society you mm -hmm. are you tend to be drawing from very specific groups very specific subcultures very specific ethnic groups occupational groups and that's what we get with these early European voyages outwards is it's not like you're sweeping one out of every 10 people off the streets of Lisbon. You're picking knights out of the household, out of the Royal household who have spent decades swinging swords on ships. And that those are the people that you're sending out into this brand new context. I see. I see. So it's like ascertainment by a selection for the Gregor Klaganis of the, uh, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're picking like you're all, you're picking guys who are already hardened killers and sending them out to do this stuff like you're, it's not like you're even picking um like merchants out of the out of the, from the lisbon merchant families though in that case it's like they're kind of the same people like the household mm -hmm. knights are intermarried with the merchant families of lisbon so yeah it's it, it's not yeah it's not like you're choosing um you're not choosing nasa astronauts to go out and yeah well, I mean, speaking of NASA astronauts, I, you know, like to give credit to the Portuguese, mm -hmm. uh, what they did was pretty audacious and incredible, uh, considering the nation that they were, the resources that they had. I mean, think about going south of Morocco and like just seeing the Sahara until you reach West Africa. And then um, it's hot. I mean, you know, I live in Austin, Texas. It's hot here and it's still not as hot as a tropical climate. So, I mean, imagining like Europeans from their latitudes, you know, from like, you know, maritime climate and like being in Africa. I mean, that's a, that's kind of badass. I'm mean, not going to lie um, for, for all the, the negativity. So, you know, they had some audacity. Um, I don't know. You know, you could use the word courage, uh, boldness. And then they went around Africa and then they got all the way to India and they show up as you. I mean, I think you had an analogy like. What, what was the analogy of like um 
like the crappy wares that they brought. Like you had like I mean, I, yeah. it's like it's like showing up to an Apple store with a bag of potatoes and pennies and trying to okay. and trying to buy things that like they okay. show up with like a tub of butter, six hats, some coral, like and it's and they're trying to buy the riches of the most uh, of the wealthiest trading area in the world with that. And so you can kind of see why they turn to violence. It's a lot easier to just like steal the stuff than it is to try and pay for it if those are your trade goods. Yeah, and like this is um I have read about this before, but I did not ever encounter such a vivid analogy. <laughs> I just, I did laugh there. I just <laughs> that was that was pretty good. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, Pat. It's, that was good. It's I mean it's incredible. And to come back to what you were saying, the it really is an incredible technical achievement to be able to make the voyages that they did. It's a lot more impressive than Columbus's voyage because it's a hell of a lot longer to go all the way down the coast of Africa, round the Cape of Good Hope all the way through the Indian Ocean, and to do this without ever having done it before. So that in a couple of places, they get native pilots to help, the, to help them make the crossings. But like for the most part, they're in effectively uncharted waters for them. They have very little idea of what they're going to find. They, uh, they thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. Um, and I, I mean, most important of all, from the Portuguese perspective, the voyages were profitable. Like, way 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 more so than columbus's early voyages so like with uh, there's a huge swell of enthusiasm after columbus gets back the first time the second voyage is is much more heavily equipped it's there's a lot more money that goes into it but then they kind of stop providing returns on the investments um, which is part of the reason why columbus gets himself in trouble if columbus had been continuing to make money for his investors he probably wouldn't have got himself into the trouble that he did all of those portuguese voyages were returning 10, 20, 50 times the initial investment. So despite the difficulty, despite the incredible technical challenges of doing this, they paid off. And that's why they kept doing them is because you know, despite losing half the ships, despite half the sailors dying on pretty much every voyage, it made they made an enormous amount of money and they were good at it. Like it's hard to overstate how good the Portuguese got at doing this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been involved in the startup world and uh, i have to say like this is a kind of makes me think of venture capital where you know most things fail but when there's a return that covers everything and so when you're talking about these levels of return that seems very similar and you know i think um you know talking about you're talking about like the merchants and how they invested they do remind me of vcs insofar as like they know that a lot of their investments are going to you know i mean it's going to fail like the, the ships are going to disappear. Um, they have no idea where they're going. I mean, this is like a high reward, high reward, pro high risk, high reward proposition. So let me move on to the, the Fuggers. Um, so I think like a lot of people who are listening don't know who Jacob Fugger and, and the banking family is. They know about the Medici's uh, probably because of TV and movies and also their artistic, their cultural production. I don't know if the Fuggers ever did anything like that. Not nearly um, to that extent. Uh -uh. Yeah, but they were the from your from reading you like um, I get the sense they're probably an order of magnitude more um, impactful in terms of like how much uh, of of, of uh, currency they flowed through the system. So can you oh. tell us about the Fuggers and how like how they're important? Yeah, so the Fuggers get their start as <clears throat> weavers in the South German city of Augsburg in the late 14th century. Over the course of the 15th century, they build up a pretty respectable merchant, uh, kind of diversified trading business that goes south to Venice. They they go to the other cities of, of South and Central Germany and the Rhineland, um, a, a regional thing. 
what's built into this is is diversification and a trading network, which is the same as the Medici did. The Medici banking was only part of what the Medici did. A lot of what they did was basically built on having agents all over the place. So they're dealing in information, they're dealing in luxury goods, they're dealing in political connections. And this is this is kind of the heart of, of their business. It's not just moving money from place to place or making investments or making loans. Like that's there's a lot more to it than that. And so from the very beginning, the Fuggers have that built in. Banking is just a side line for them. The Fuggers only really get into banking when they get into state finance. So they don't, it's not like they take deposits from anybody off the street. They take what are effectively investments from the really wealthy community of bankers and bankers, merchants, industrialists in Augsburg, and then they put that money to work. So the way they put that to work is by forging really close political connections with the Habsburgs of uh, of Austria. So at first with a guy named Sigismund, who uh, was not an especially accomplished political figure, but he really likes to fight and so fi- and fighting required money. So he had to take out loans. Um, the Fuggers figured out that there were silver mines right there in the Tyrol, right there in the territory of these Habsburg archdukes, and they could make loans. Uh, in hard currency right away, and they could get silver straight from the mines as security on those loans. And this is the root of what makes the Habsburg or of what makes the the Fuggers incredibly wealthy is they just make increasingly large loans by doing the math and figuring out that if we get X amount of silver in return for this loan, we're going to make almost uh, almost uh, unlimited profits. So they build this up slowly but surely and over and over and over and over, over decades and decades and decades. They get into the copper mining business. And after a little while, their profits from the copper mining business far outweigh what they're making from state finance and, and loans and, and even from the silver. Um, they, they basically build themselves out into a diversified industrial and banking operation. So they dabble in other things. They'll make, they make investments in some of the Portuguese fleets going to India. They do merchant banking stuff in the city of Antwerp. They handle transactions for the church. Um, that's how the, the Fuggers are implicated in the uh, specific incident that leads to Martin Luther getting really mad and writing the 95 Theses is the Fuggers had made a loan to, uh, to an archbishop. Um, in order to buy his seat. That was that was Fugger money that had paid for that. Um, Jakob Fugger eventually ends up buying the throne of the Holy Roman Empire for Charles V. He provides almost the entirety of the cash necessary to, to bribe the electors to make it to to, uh, to put him in position. So the scale of business that the Fuggers eventually get into is literally on the is literally on the order of buying thrones, of controlling 40 to 50 percent of Europe's entire copper output financing wars, um, and then kind of, and then, you know, just as a little sideline, uh, kicking off the Reformation. That's the Fuggers are just everywhere. Their, their tendrils are everywhere. Their money is everywhere. The money is all of the money that's, that's paying soldiers, that's financing wars, that that's leading to immiseration and destruction. And, um, and at the same time, incredible productivity is Fugger money. That's passing through their account books, their counting houses, um, their bills of exchange. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I use the analogy with VCs. Um, I think that, you know, reading about the Fuggers, um, I think of them as kind of like proto Rothschilds, mm-hmm. like, you know, bankers to these nations. And, um, you know, we don't know about them just because, well, we have the Rothschilds and the Rothschilds are still around. <laughs> uh, my understanding is the Fuggers still aren't around. So, um, you know, and maybe private equity is not a, a good analogy. But, you know, I think of them like they got a huge pile of money. And they got to figure out what they want to do with it. 
And, you know, as you say, like um, they use banking, other things as kind of like entrees. And then, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of like they're holding the Habsburg hostage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? there's there's a real question as to as to who actually as to who owns who at a at a particular point. Um, the 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 Fugger investments in the Habsburgs reached such an absurd scale that they couldn't really disentangle themselves from the Habsburgs even if they wanted to. But at the same time, and I think this is kind of emblematic of this this whole era, and one of the things that ends up setting Europe apart is you end up with this really close alliance alignment of incentives between high-level financiers, merchants, and state actors, right? So eventually, kings want to keep fighting wars. They need money to do it. The only people who can give them the money to do this are bankers, merchant bankers. And past a certain point, you can't make those guys give you loans. They want security. They want some say in how things are going to be run. And this ends up being one of the long-term differences between Europe and especially the Muslim world, right? Is that you have an institutionalized class of merchants and financiers who are very tightly tied into the activities of the state. And everybody's incentives align. You know, this is how we end up with the fiscal military state in the late 17th, 18th centuries, where it is literally just built to make war because there are a variety of different funding mechanisms to make sure that everybody gets paid, the soldiers get paid, the armies get paid, and then eventually the bankers get paid back for their loans. Um, mm-hmm. And this is this is the institutional mechanism that drives European war making. It's not so much about technology. It's not so much about even the will to make war. It's about the mechanisms that made it possible to do this year after year after year, decade after decade after decade. And so eventually, way down the road, you do end up with edges in military technology and war making capacity, but it rests on a financial foundation. And that financial foundation grows up in this period. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a huge, complicated topic. But, um, you know, you're you're making a really good point. So, you know, an analogy that I might use for like talking like a biologist would be like think about like multicellular organisms. Like the basic parts of multicellular organisms are already out there. Uh, so like the mitochondria might be co-opted bacteria and then other organelles within the cell and then the cells differentiate into tissues. So, they're all there, but they got bring they bring, they're brought together in this bundle and then how is the bundle the the you know, the sum is the greater than, you know, the whole is the greater than the sum of its parts, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is what you're getting at within Europe. So, you know, we think of things like, oh, the printing press, you know, oh, the Reformation, like these like single mm-hmm. things. But um, I think what you're pointing out is these single things are all part of this whole movement, the synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And the synchronicity synthesized together is at the heart of the great divergence. Is, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I, th- that, I think that's that's a really succinct way of, of putting it all together. It, it's that... All of these things were mutually reinforcing processes. It's not any one individual thing. It's that all of them are happening together at the same time. They involve the same people, a lot of them. Um, There are the same figures involved in them. It's the same money flowing back and forth. It's the same financial mechanisms that underpin all of them. Um, You know, the printing press is a speculative investment in the same way that financing an army of mercenaries or a voyage of exploration is a speculative investment. So that's kind of the thread that ties them together, but what the the but but finance alone does not explain the 
the great divergence. Like it's the finances, the mechanism that powers these things. It's not necessarily the impetus. And I think a lot of it is just kind of pure accident and contingency. And one domino falls and the next domino falls and the next domino falls. So there are things that are structurally that, that where the structures are going to point to that. And there's you're, you're going to be led in this direction, but eventually something just kind of happens and happens and happens. And was it destined that Europe was going to fight 65 years of almost continuous war in the early 16th century? It wasn't destined, but things happened. And once it started, it wasn't going to stop. And I think that's a good... Um, it's a good kind of metaphor for understanding history as a whole is that you may have things that are structurally determined or even overdetermined based on your based on your your starting conditions but the but eventually you need some kind of fuse lighting events to get you there so i don't think it's a given that the reformation was going to happen there are things that were there are things that pointed in that direction but eventually once the spark caught that's when we're set off on a whole new course and you know, it's like, there's a good reason why I, I think a lot of professional historians have kind of shied away from talking about causality and they tend to leave causality to the political scientists and the economists and the sociologists. Um, and it's because historians understand that the past is messy and that there's there's a lot of different things happening at any given point in time. You can't just separate it out into really neat little causal pockets and, and sequences. Um, so... I felt like I was stepping into kind of a minefield here, knowing that there were going to be historians who read it that way. And are like, why are you even trying to explain this? It's not explainable. Just talk about what happened or try and, or pick out one single thing and talk about the, the development of that particular thing. But I think it's important to at least acknowledge that there are reasons why things happen. <laughs> if that makes any sort of sense at all, you know, it, like, it's not, it's not just one damn thing after the other. Yeah. There, there are patterns and structures and, and incentives and, 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 pieces that determine how you get forced in a particular direction, even if contingency plays a role, even if there are accidents, even if very, very occasionally something that one person decides to do does kind of spark things off or set things off in a whole new direction. Like there, that is possible. And I think it's, and what I wanted to try to do in some, in, in some broader way was just like, acknowledge that we can try to make some sort of sense of that, that there are reasons why things happen, that the emergence of Europe is at least an explainable thing, even if it involves taking into account a lot of, a lot of processes and a lot of variables um, mm -hmm. over time. That was, that was what I was going for. <laughs> yeah, no, I got it. But I mean, um, so let, let's talk about the Reformation and Martin Luther. Um, I get the sense that your opinion is Columbus was a sufficient man, but not a necessary man. Yeah. What would you say about Martin Luther? Yeah, so I think Martin Luther is actually an irreplaceable figure. I think if you're if you're a sports fan and you think in terms of wins above replacement um, and, and or value over replacement player, I think Martin Luther stands right at the top of that heap because um, he's he has a very particular and specific mixture of skill sets and personality traits that happen to suit very well the task that he sets for himself. So he's absolutely insufferable in the sense that he's he can't just let somebody say something to or about him without responding. He's a true poster. He's a true internet guy. Like he would be a terror on a message board, you know? <laughs> like that's that's Martin Luther in a nutshell. Wait, are you saying that he's the original reply guy? He is Martin Luther is a 
big time reply guy. Yeah. And eventually Martin Luther has reply guys of his own. That's the, that's the dynamic. That's the whole dynamic of the reformation. In fact, especially the early reformation is it's not people who are out there making these big sweeping ideological statements about, we believe this huge thing that differs in these fundamental ways from, you know, church doctrine. It's, you said this mean thing about me. That's not what I actually believe. I'm going to write an eight-page pamphlet with a nasty woodcut uh, with a nasty woodcut print of you on the front, and then ten thousand people are going to buy that. And that's how the Reformation develops. It's this kind of blast and counterblast, mostly carried out in cheap, disposable pamphlets that happen to be very profitable for the printers who make them. And that's how the Reformation develops. And in that particular context, if that's what we understand the early Reformation to be, this kind of spiraling um, series of replies back and forth in which people get angrier and angrier and more and more invested, then you can see how Martin Luther plays a role because he just never stops writing. He is really good at understanding what's going to sell to the printers, like what the printers are actually going to want to put out there. And he's really good at writing in a way that common people, common-ish people can understand it. Like he writes in both Latin and, and the vernacular German. So Martin Luther opens up religious debate to a whole new series of audiences. Like the chances of you having some obscure theology professor at an out-of-the-way university who just happens to have a firm grasp of the printing business, the nature of writing pamphlets, um, the skill sets to write pamphlets in both Latin and German appeal to a whole bunch of different audiences with that, um, while at the same time being just totally fearless himself and not caring about the consequences, while also just being so mad that he had to keep writing. Like, that's a really rare combination of things to have in, in any individual person. Like, there are aspects of Luther that you can see echoed in his contemporaries. That combination of things and being good at all of them is, I, I mean, I think that's essentially unique. And, and the early Reformation is just inseparable from Luther himself. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, like, um, Luther, uh, the magnitude of the vector uh, is quite high now. Whether you think the vector is positive or negative, <laughs> that depends on way. Because yeah. some of the some of the things that um I've heard like Catholics say about Luther are just like, whoa, dude. But then when you read about his life, you're like, I can see why you're saying that. Now, mm -hmm. if you're a Protestant, you would not, you know, have the same view. You'd be like, oh, that's great. You know, the <laughs> the, the the original reply guy. You know, but like, you know, his personality is very. Uh, he was a character. He was yeah. a character. He's he's like he he feels like a fully formed person, you know, in a way that a lot of uh, of past figures don't. That's not just because we have access to so much of his writing. He like he seems human and he, he seems both human and larger than life at the same time. And he's like he's very aware of his flaws as a person and he's never able to overcome his flaws. He knows that he's just mad all the time. He knows that he shouldn't be. He knows that God is not like looking fondly at him for just being mad as hell constantly. Uh, he knows that he's, he's kind of stricken by feelings of guilt and he knows that uh, he spends his whole life trying to overcome these. Um, and so there are ways in which like Luther's kind of personality characteristics work themselves out in his theology in, in ways that become really influential. But the flip side to Luther um, and Luther's importance early on is that it, it's it's remarkable to me how fast the Reformation moves past him, that like once he sets these things in motion and once he's present at this basically like two and a half, three year long inflection point, the Reformation is out of Luther's hands. Like you could, at that point, you could pull Luther away, replace him with somebody else, or just remove him entirely. And at that point, the Reformation still was going to happen. 
because Luther wasn't in control anymore. That's something Luther never got used to was the idea that he mm -hmm. couldn't just tell people what to do, that people weren't just going to listen to him, that they had their own ideas about church reform, what scripture was saying, what was important. Um, you know, like Luther could never really, uh, could never really grasp that. And at least toward the end of, until the end of his life, when he got real anti-Semitic with the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a very, uh, let the die fly moment, but, uh, mm -hmm. once, once the dice left his hand, they had a life of their own and he didn't realize that. Right. Or, yeah. I mean, who would realize that? Who would realize that? I mean, Luther had a sense of some historical perspective. He was an educated man, but there had been uh, John Wycliffe. You know, there's been the Hussites. There's been multiple mm -hmm. attempts to reform the church, but the, the breaking of Western Christianity that occurred in the early 16th century was kind of unprecedented. And so let me bring up uh, the technological issue, the printing press and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, in the middle of in the middle of of, of the verge, um, the printing press is kind of like, I mean, there's one chapter where it's like, you know, printing is in the title, but really it's all there. Like you can't, you can't uh, deny the importance of this new information technology. Um, you know, it increased the amount of information by, you know, one to two orders of magnitude probably, you know, which is okay. Like, you know, in the internet age, we understand what that can do, you know? And so this obviously created a huge impact in Europe in the 16th century. So my question to you um, I'm going to put you on the spot is, do you think without the printing press, the Reformation could have happened? And also, can you talk about why the printing press um, did not spread very rapidly outside of, you know, I know, I know that, like, for example, even in Europe, in Spain, there were less books produced than, say, in the Low Countries. So can you talk about this variation that's going on within Europe and outside of Europe? Yeah, so... First of all, to answer your first question, no, I don't think there's any reformation without the printing press, but there's a mutually reinforcing relationship between the two because what what turns out to happen is it's not it's not the the kind of canard that like, well, the church couldn't control the flow of information anymore. That's not really what that's not really what it is. It's that the reformation makes church reform as a topic that people could be invested in available to a much wider audience than it had been before. So the medieval church is constantly being reformed. There are constantly reform movements. The history of medieval Christianity is the history of various reform movements. And sometimes those reform movements end up with somebody getting canonized and some good, some major shift that makes people happy. Sometimes it ends with that guy getting burned at the stake. Those are those are kind of equal possibilities depending on where you're at and, and who's doing the who's doing the investigating. Or sometimes the person's just completely ignored and people are like, oh, that guy's crazy. We don't have to listen to him. So the there the idea that like Luther was setting out to reform the church is I mean, that's just what what he was supposed to do. Everybody was trying to reform the church. His first major opponent, a guy named Cardinal Cajetan, had written a treatise on indulgences that was very similar to the objections that Luther raised in the 95 theses. Um it's just that Luther ends up taking things a little bit further by virtue of questioning the authority of the church. Um, without the printing press, that couldn't have happened because there couldn't have been a critical mass of people. And if the real meat of the Reformation is people getting their own ideas about what the, about what's supposed to happen, that only happens in the context of them reading scripture themselves of them reading these pamphlets, of them reading the tracts that are put out there by by uh, by Reformation writers, it, the Reformation is is an event that happens over millions of people. 
You know what I mean? It's not, it's not just, um, it's not a top-down phenomenon. It's that people are reading and thinking for themselves. They're coming up with their own ideas about what scripture means and how they're supposed to best serve God. And that's the cat that Luther lets out of the bag with the aid of printers. Um, now, to, to answer your second question, it's actually tied into this. The reason that printing was not present everywhere and why there were still more books being copied by hand in the 1490s than were being printed is because printing couldn't find a business model that worked. It's incredibly expensive to put together, not so much the press itself. A press is simple, but the type, the ink, the paper, uh, the labor, having to pay for all of that stuff uh, without ever see it, without seeing a penny in return means that you've got to deal in these cycles of credit. You've always got to owe somebody. You've got to have investors. Most of most printers were artisans. They were being funded by kind of merchant bankers or merchant investors. Um, so it creates a, a kind of a difficult business model to work with. You've got to you've got to speculate how many people are going to buy a copy of this work. Is there a market for this? Where are the people who are going to buy this? Because it's not like everybody's literate or has the money to spend on a book. So you've got to have distribution networks. You've got to think, okay. I've got 50 people who are going to buy this in Strasbourg. I've got 20 people who are going to buy this in Cologne. I've got 10 people who are going to buy it in Nuremberg and 30 in Augsburg. Well, how are you going to get the copies there? How, who's your agent who's going to collect the funds for, uh, for that purchase from buyers? Um, it ends up being this really complicated, layered series of businesses. And that's where the Reformation comes in. One of the things that printers always looked for was what's called jobbing work where is just like you can run off a bunch of handbills for the town council. You can, uh, uh, it, oh, there's a, there's an indulgence campaign. The church is selling indulgences. Okay, great. We're going to run off 10,000 indulgence certificates. That's the kind of ready money that kept printers in business. And the Reformation, by virtue of creating a reading market for uh, for pamphlets, ends up saving the printing industry and giving it a whole lot, a whole new breath of life. So it becomes, again, this mutually reinforcing thing where people want to read the stuff, printers print it, people want to read more of it. So printers print more of it, which creates more printers, uh, or which creates incentives to, to put more printers in business to produce the stuff. So the Reformation and printing go hand in hand in that everybody's incentives align. Reformers want people to read their stuff, people want to read the stuff, and printers want to print it. Yeah, um, I was... Um... You know, like a lot of the stuff I would say in your book, uh, like I kind of knew on the high level, I kind of knew, but it, it brought it to life. So, for example, the, the massive uh, capital investment necessary for printing, um, I had not like kind of internalized it. And so, you know, what you're getting at here is, you know, you got to get a lot of investment. You got to print all this stuff out and then hope it sells. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is more like um, Tesla than a social media startup. Oh, yeah. Like it, most printers went bust. Like there's like most the average printer in Venice in the late 15th century, I think, managed to print two or three editions before they went belly up. And that's in, and, and that's including in that sample printers like Aldous Minutius, who were in business for decades. Right. So you have a lot of printers who get together the funding to do one edition of a book and then they lose money on it and they never print anything again. So it's not like they're building up these generational businesses. It's this incredibly volatile cutthroat industry. People are cheating each other. Um, the like Gutenberg, the, the, the most famous first printer goes out of business after after like two or three editions and, because he could uh, he uh, he like reinvested the profits from a book in doing another edition of something to sell right away when his investor wanted the profits back. 
he wanted to be re- he wanted his loans to be repaid. The guy sued him. Gutenberg loses the press. He loses the type uh, and ends up having to go off and 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 leave Mainz. So there's like. And Gutenberg is a typical example of this. It's a really hard business to break into. It's like, you know, think about how long it took Facebook to, to make money. Think about how long it took Facebook to find business models that work. Think about how long the internet was um, existed before people found ways to make enormous sums of money out of it. Like, mm-hmm. And I think printing was very similar. It took a long time to find the business models to make this new media of this new medium of communications viable from a, from a business perspective. I mean, for, for every Amazon, there's a hundred pets.com. I mean, that's basically the impression that I'm getting. So, um, you know, you close out, uh, the book. So, you know, in the middle sections of the book, you go pretty deep into the technological, economic, social history. Um, and you know, I'm not going to say we all know the Reformation, but we're familiar with the Reformation. So I think, you know, on that section, you kind of like leveraged a lot of what people knew, but you kind of gave it a new spin, I feel. Um, so but you end with like the Ottomans and Charles, the Charles V, who was like kind of like a world emperor. Um, can you can you explain to the listeners why the Ottomans are important and how they loom large in the 16th century? Because I think history happened we know we know that this period was setting the stage for the european liftoff i mean at least that's a hypothesis Mm -hmm. and it seems quite plausible uh for later but at the time it didn't look like that and can you talk about the ottomans and how how large they loomed for europeans yeah so everybody was terrified of the ottomans and they should have been terrified of the ottomans um the ottomans were the superpower of the late 15th and early 16th centuries they were an expansive expanding state um, they were militarily every bit the match of even the combined weight of several European states. Um, they were as as or more technologically advanced. They were definitely better at siege warfare. Um, they had bigger, better guns. They were better at mining and undermining fortifications. Um, they were really, really good at this. It was a conquest state um, that was bureaucratically sophisticated, much more sophisticated on an, on an administrative level than any European state was at this time. Um, the 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 Ottomans when they the Ottomans knew where their tax money was they knew how to use it they knew how to direct it to various projects which in a pre modern state is not something you should take for granted like it's really hard to centrally keep track of of funds in a pre modern state the Ottomans could do that the Ottomans had meritocratic systems for identifying and promoting talent in especially the Janissaries are the most famous example of that they they had a standing army when European states were um, did not have standing armies you know or only had very small ones the Ottomans could put enormous forces into the field they could supply them over long distances um, and they could do this not because it, uh, not because it was like you know despotic oriental um, top-down control but because it was an advanced proto-modern bureaucratic state um, that that was a participant in the same kinds of trends, um, technological, social, cultural, and economic that were prevailing in Europe at that time. The Ottoman Empire was part of Europe. It was a European power, um, far more than it was a, a, an Asian one um, for, or an African one for, for most of this period. The If you were, uh, uh, if you had the opportunity to be a European ruler in 1540 or 1550, um, you would want to be Suleiman the Magnificent. You didn't want to be Charles V because Suleiman the Magnificent had overflowing treasuries. He had budget surpluses. Charles was per- perpetually indebted. Um, Charles had to deal with 
uh, a patchwork of political units that were all kind of united in his person, Suleiman the Magnificent could give orders and have them be obeyed. He didn't have to worry about troublesome estates not granting him the tax revenue that he needed for this. He had bureaucrats who were who would do their jobs and go out and collect the money that he needed and wanted. Um, the Ottoman state was really remarkable. Um, and it's, uh, but I think that the sheer abundance that the Ottomans had, the fact that it was a conquest state, the fact that they had budget surpluses meant that they never needed to develop in this specific period, the kinds of fiscal mechanisms that European states did. They never needed to find these really clever and desperate ways of stretching coinage to pay for yet another year of war and yet another year of war. The Ottomans rarely had two years of budget shortfalls one after the other. They rarely had budget shortfalls, period. Um, and so they never had to do these things like, you know, setting up long-term interest-bearing shares of state debt like the Spanish did during the during the, the conquest of Granada. Uh, they never had to mortgage the entire kingdom to cartels of Augsburg bankers to pay for one more war. They never had to do that. And in the short run, these things really hurt European rulers. Um, they they led to disastrous consequences like the sack of Rome in 1527 because they couldn't pay a mercenary army. You know, um, in the long run, though, as I mentioned earlier, you get this long run alignment of incentives between financiers, state actors, and the tools that allow them to make war year after year after year. The Ottomans, it became progressively harder for them to do that on the same scale. But even then, it takes until the 18th century before the Ottomans kind of fall out of the the the, the first rank of European powers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot here. Like, I've read a little bit of – I mean, I think part of the issue here is – and it's hard for modern people to understand or think about because we think of our own personal situation. But debt is good actually for the state. You know, I mean, or like that's a theory, right? Uh, I'm not yep. saying that I necessarily believe that, but you know, there, there's uh, there's limit. You can have too much of a good thing, you know. But um, like Alexander Hamilton, you know, like he created the public debt, and you know, the British famously in the 18th century, you know, they took on debt to finance their wars, and um, the argument for why the British beat the French, or like you know, you know, in terms of like the game of you know world powers in the 18th century, is they just had better fiscal management. And so you're kind of making this argument now, you know, from a, again, I'm going to go back to a biological explanation. It's like, it's like the Ottomans are at a local optimum mm -hmm. in terms of like, they're here, they optimized for the short term and, you know, they have their stuff in order, but they didn't have to innovate. They didn't have to go outside of their parameter space of possibilities. And so, um, they weren't, you know, able to like lift off and diverge into this whole new dimension of possibilities. Because as you said, um, you know, the Ottomans, I mean, the Russians and um, the Habsburg, I mean, they were fighting them into like the 18th century and still losing sometimes. The Ottomans were not the sick man of Europe until very, very late. Um, yes, they were a little stagnant, but, you know, you can talk to the Greeks about um, how how they lacked in vigor in the 17th century. You know, like they, they kept their territories. They had a very large empire for a long time. So that it wasn't necessarily a, quote, bad thing um, over a, a really long interval. It's only in really the 19th really after 1750 and 1800 that you can see kind of the fruits of what Europe had become. So, you know, I think one of them. 
one of the lessons that people will take from this book is there's all sorts of like seemingly random things that can happen that kind of snap together over time and organically develop and they can only bear fruit after a long long interval and so it's kind of hard to predict and this is you know if you're a vc this is why you invest in a lot of different things because things can look great on paper, but you don't know how the execution's going to happen. You don't know what the market's going to be like. There's just like so much you don't know. And so I think in our current time of, uh, you know, like just roiling economic activity and churn, um, we can kind of understand what's happening here, uh, you know, in, in a better way than like, I mean, maybe even the 1950s where it was like, you know, the rise of like the corporations and this like stable huge units because when you're talking about the printers this is exactly what happened during the dot-com boom before a great mm -hmm. shakeout there's all these companies that emerge it's exactly what happened in the early 20th century with automobiles like there were like mm -hmm. dozens and dozens hundreds of automobile makers before it shook out into like three or four players right and so um you know we've kind of gone through the book but you know i do want to say you know we didn't discuss in detail like the consolidation of the state you know, so there's all these tensions where on the one hand, Europe is separated into all of these small political units that are engaging in competition. Like, I, I feel like a little bit of like a Jared Diamond, uh, Walter Scheidel in this mm -hmm. book in terms of, you know, it was good, actually, that Europe wasn't united. Mm -hmm. Right. There was oh, yeah. experimenting okay. competition. Yeah. The, and there's all you can always go somewhere else. That's that's a big thing. Um that there's always the possibility to move on to another city, to another place. Like there's tons of internal movement in Western Europe at this time. Lots of people moving from place to place, not just merchants, but sailors, soldiers, artisans. Yeah. Like there are, there are communities of expatriate artisans all over the place. There are tons of Flemings in England, for example, because it's just right across the North Sea. It's incredibly regionally integrated. And so, so you have this tension on the one hand between the political divisions of Europe, which create strong incentives for, for warfare and, and more or less continuous conflict. But at the same time, you have deep cultural institutional similarities that unite the, uh, that unite the whole region. So you can go from one place to another without feeling totally dislocated while at the same while at the same time having completely moved from one political unit to the next you know so there's there's this really interesting kind of uh, duality to the whole thing i mean a lot of that is the church um because of the universality of the church but a lot of it is also just economic activity it's that there's a lot more regional integration in europe than there is in a lot of the rest of the world and there has to be you know it's 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 commercially sophisticated and commercial sophistication means movement of goods and people um and idea whenever people and goods are moving so too are ideas well i mean so i mean you started you know the first chapter after the introduction mm -hmm. um and i didn't like really talk about it in, 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 you know but the introduction you talk about the sack of rome pretty brutal you know mm -hmm. um but if people don't know about the sack of Rome, at least like the one in the 16th century, check it out. It's probably worse than the one under Alaric, right? Oh, much, much, much worse. Yeah, it's it's in terms of the sacks of Rome that we have good historical sources for. It's definitely the worst one in terms of in terms of casualties and looting. And yeah, it's it's just awful stuff. I mean, it was a good I was I got to say it was a good hook. It was good. It came out with a bang. I'm just like, all right. And then you get to like the printer, the Greek printer. And I'm like, okay, like this is much more chill. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, I was looking for a, a sequence of different vibes, just vibe. Yeah. Just vibe. Def definitely. I totally, I mean, like going from uh, the mercenary to the printer, I'm like, okay, like this is, 
Because, like, the, the mercenary part, like, okay, this guy should not actually have survived. No. <laughs> no. Like, he should have died of a skull fracture or something if he wasn't, like, killed on the on the battlefield. I, yeah, it's one of the things I wonder about, um, like, medieval, about medieval knights especially, is, like, did they get chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Like, did they, like, how did that work? I mean, they have to be constantly taking blows to the head. You're falling off horses. You're getting smacked around wearing a helmet. Like, that can't be good for your brain health. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, so, you know, the last question I got to ask you, Patrick, like, so you start out with this book project, and I'm sure you had a plan, a plan of attack, you had an outline, you had all this stuff. Like, what is what did what did you learn writing this book? Um, in terms of, say, like, you know, professionally, like, in terms of, okay, like, as a writer, but also, what did you learn as a historian writing this book? Because there are always surprises. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, so, I think as a writer, what I learned um, is first of all the importance of planning. Um, that you you have got to you've you've got to do your very best to plan out every single aspect from the very beginning because the whole has to be more than the sum of its parts. Like you may write it chapter by chapter, but you've got to be building towards larger things. And some of that you can put in at the end as you've done it, but like you've really got to have that stuff in mind as you're as you're going through. You've got to have the scenes that you want to write. You've got to have the the, re, the research really, really has to be done. You cannot do the research as you're going along and expect to be expect to be writing it productively. Um, so, I mean, writing a book is to some extent a skill, and so I feel like I got better at it as I went along. Like I think the I think the writing got easier. I I, I feel like I had a better sense for what I was doing. As a historian, I think I more fully appreciate the difficulty of doing narrative. Um, the, and you know, that's, I've been doing it for years now in, in my podcasts, but like telling a story is really hard. And this is, um, I, I try to explain this to, to my, my fellow academics and, uh, and, and professional historians that like, just because you don't think that you like narrative doesn't mean that a, you shouldn't do it or B that it's like somehow easy that you're above doing narrative. Like you've, it, you've got to engage your readers somehow. And so I think what I learned over the course of doing this book was how you can make some stabs at combining um, storytelling narrative with much, uh, hopefully much more methodologically sound history uh, without losing sight of either one with, while keeping the audience engaged and, um, and, and being faithful to the source material, like trying to, trying to do justice to, to the, the complexity and messiness of the past. Like stories are inherently, um, are inherently simplifying, you know, they, they cut away the extraneous stuff. They clean things up to make it digestible. So trying to get the most compelling parts of that while still, uh, just conveying like how messed up the past is. I mean, present too, but how messed up the past is and how complex it is and how many things are going on at any given time. Like, I feel like I have a better appreciation for, for all of that. All right. Um, you know, it's been great talking to you. Um, you know, we just scratched the surface. Like I could go on and on, like, obviously like looping back, there's stuff that I didn't touch on, but that's fine. Um, I think I wanted to give, give the listener a taste. Uh, this is a very quick read and um but it's i would say it's like moderately dense you know it's not like crazy but it's not like um 
as I said, like your academic background, I think it showed, but also there's the, the vividness uh, of the narrative of the characters uh, is distinct. And so I think that's great. Um, you know, I really enjoyed it. So the book is The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. Uh, for people who want to find Patrick elsewhere, um, you know, I think like pretty much everyone listening to this probably knows about Tides of History. But if you don't, check out Tides of History. Um, it's a really good uh, podcast. If you don't know about Tides of History, um, Maybe read The Verge first, because otherwise <laughs> you're going to be hearing Patrick's voice in your head reading the whole thing, which I'm not complaining about. But that's basically what happened to me, uh, where it's like you're going to hear the music interstitials during the, the chapters and stuff. So it's going to be um, it's going to be a different experience. But uh, thank you for your time, Patrick. And I really enjoyed the book. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've been reading you for years. It's a pleasure. Yeah. This podcast for kids.